But here's the bigger question. As born-again Christians, do we care? Do we care? Did we care today? Because this is a message for believers, and it's, it's not a trivial matter. It really isn't. If you can picture how long eternity is, it never ends. So what we need to do is far more important than the, the NFL playoffs or the World Series or the, the NHL or the latest movie or the, the latest teen idol or whatever else it might be. It is far more important. We need a renewal. We need a revival of seeking the lost, of reaching out. Because it's so important. And so as God's people, we need to make a commitment to be conscious of the unsaved. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark and the 16th chapter, Mark chapter 16. I'd like to talk today about having a heart for unbelievers, caring about the unsaved or the lost, as we might say. Christ has been to Calvary at this point. He's spent three days and nights in the grave. He's come out victoriously, and he spent some weeks discipling his disciples, and now it's time for him to ascend up into heaven. We pick it up in Mark chapter 16, and in verse number 14, it says, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's read that again. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, Notice this part, and preach the gospel to every creature or to every person. We're going to be talking about this over the next few weeks as we deal with having a heart for unbelievers. Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now for the salvation you've given to us. We thank you for those who brought it to us. And Father, they'll forever be precious to us. It made a difference in our eternity. But Lord, we have now a responsibility to the seven Point two billion people that remain upon this earth to bring that message, that good news to them. Lord, as God's people, we have the best news on the planet. May we not keep it to ourselves. Please challenge us at this hour to take that which we know from thy word, that which we have learned in this place, and take it outside of these four walls and make a difference. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have been to the... Uh, Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. It stands 550 feet high. That's easy to remember. It was built back in the 1800s and uh, quite a sight since that time. You know, when we think of graffiti, we think of it on subway walls or railroad cars, boxcars, or maybe the sides of buildings. But they actually, at the turn of the century, found some graffiti in the Washington Monument. But it wasn't the kind you'd find on the subway wall. Someone who is helping to erect that, that magnificent uh, tower many years ago evidently was a born-again Christian. And as workers at the turn of the century were remodeling it, they removed some marble wainscoting, and they found these words underneath. And I read it, quote, Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul, 
erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this one, reads the inscription, which now can be viewed by visitors in the uh, monument. It's signed BFB. Nobody knows who, who BFB was or who, uh, who left out those words there, but he left behind a great truth. Whoever points someone to Christ erects a monument far greater than any on the face of this earth. Whoever turns any to Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is also wise and will shine as the brightness of the firmament forever and ever. When we talk about reaching the lost, who are the lost? Christ said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, to be lost is not a, a flattering compliment. It's speaking in spiritual terms of not knowing for sure you're going to heaven when you die, not having been saved, not having been converted, not having been born again. And I don't use that term lost to offend anyone, but the bottom line is the lost don't know they're lost. I didn't know I was lost before I got saved. Did you? I mean, if you did, it's insane to walk around one heartbeat and one breath from from an eternity in hell. I didn't know I was lost. Thank God somebody brought the message to me. But... But I was lost, and you were lost before you got saved. And the expression lost is the exact opposite of the expression saved. The saved are those who have been born again. The saved are those who are going to heaven when they die. And we find in Revelation 21, 24, that the nations of them that are saved shall walk the golden street of heaven. So lost is the opposite of saved. Saved is the opposite of lost. And if you're saved, you can thank God for that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior to have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants people to be saved. And the Bible says, for by grace are you saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. If you have been saved, you've understood the gospel message, the good news that you can't work your way to heaven. It's not of works lest any man should boast. But it's by the grace of God, and it was purchased when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. And if you will come to Christ in repentance with a change of mind about your sin and place all your faith in him, plus nothing, minus nothing, calling upon him, you're born again, as the Bible says. You're saved. Now, the lost don't realize they're lost. We could call that spiritually comatose, if you will. Spiritually comatose. But this isn't a message for the lost. This is a message for the saved. This is a message for believers. And and believers need to be conscious of the comatose. Spiritually comatose, if I could put it that way. On on, uh, the days leading up to my salvation in March of 81, I was trying to find somebody to explain the plan of salvation to me. I was literally knocking on the doors of churches, trying to find somebody who could tell me what this born-again business is all about. One Thursday in March, I'd worked my day as an electrician and, and uh, went to Hardy's in Crookston, the only fast food place they had. I call it the Last Supper. And uh, anyway, I uh, ordered a, a big deluxe, and as I was sitting there eating, I, I thought, this is just, this is eating me up. And I said, I've got to talk to somebody about this. I thought of one church I hadn't been to, and I was avoiding it on purpose, because there were people I was related to who knew about that church, and I didn't want word to get back. If, if I talked to that pastor and, and my relatives found out, boy, I'd be disowned, you know. But, but finally, I was under such conviction. It was the last straw, and I went to that church after eating. In fact, I went to the pastor's house first. I looked up his name and, and his address in the phone book, knocked on his door. His wife said he was out the church. I knew where the church was. 
And I went out to that church, and, and uh, they pointed me to his office, and you've heard the story before. Two hours later, I came out saved and rejoicing. And, but I'll tell you something that was glaring to me. Probably the most glaring thing to me at that point was all the people I knew and loved who needed what I just got. I mean, doesn't that just make sense? If, if they were believing like, like me and I was going to hell... And, and now this message from God's word is so plain and simple, and, and it, it'll, it'll get a person to heaven. I, I couldn't help but think of all the people that, that I knew who needed that message. I took it personally. Folks, we need to take it personally, don't we? We are surrounded by lost people. We not only have our circle of influence, but we need to be mindful of this entire community, this county, this state, this area. When I, when I speak of being mindful, I'm talking about being sensitive or attentive or, or watchful or perceptive of those who aren't saved. They're everywhere. And we're keen to that. We're alert to that. We're alive to that. I don't know if you ever go to a mall or a place with a bunch of people. There's a fellow in this church who had some tickets to an NFL game this last fall. And he couldn't go, so I, I purchased the tickets, got to go. And uh, it, was, it was really an amazing stadium. It was packed, or tens of thousands, like over 80,000 people there. But, you know, as, as I'm sitting at this, I'm, I'm just looking around thinking, I wonder how many saved people are here. If, if they could just kind of light up or glow or something, you know, in, 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 the, in the dark sky, how many of these people would really truly be born again? Wherever you go in society, if, if people could kind of glow somehow, I wonder how few it would be at West Acres or, or at, uh, up at NDSU and in the, uh, the Fargo Dome or whatever it might be where the masses are. How few of those people actually would stick out as somebody who has been truly born again? You know, the, the night I got saved... It was, it was alarming to me. The next day, it was alarming to me. I, I started in with the fellow I worked with and, and everyone else I could find. But you know what happens after some time? And it's human nature. Things left to themselves tend to go downhill, right? And even in Revelation chapter uh, 2, it talks about those who have left their first love. I don't know what's your first love. It ought to be the Lord. It ought to be the local church. But it ought to be souls. When I got saved, I had a burden for souls. But that can wane. That can fade as, as time goes on. You know, it's kind of like anything left to itself. If you make a policy in your home for your children, and you say, this is, this is the rule, this is the, the law, and you don't uh, uphold it and enforce it, what happens? It just it kind of blows away, as they say. It just kind of goes downhill from that time on. And so as God's people, we need to make a commitment to be conscious of the unsaved. Because the nature of the beast is such, spiritually speaking, that if we're not conscious and cognizant of the, the loss, it's, it's going to slip away. Uh, being mindful of them is going to slip away. I have to, you have to, the staff of this church uh, has to continue to be reminded that the lost are lost. They're going to stay lost unless we do something about it. God help us to cultivate a soul winner's fire, to stir the embers if they're kind of dying down. Because the unsaved don't know the peril they're in. They are one heartbeat. They are one breath from hell. And, and lest I, I, I sound dramatic, turn back to Matthew chapter 7. We recognize what we read a moment ago as Christ, in a different way, giving the Great Commission uh, to his church at that point, but basically saying, going into the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. And why should we do that? Why is that important? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, Familiar territory, verse 13, 
Christ says, enter in at the straight gate. That means narrow. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. In my Bible, I've underlined the word many. Many there be which go in at that gate, because straight or narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I've underlined the word few in that verse. So when talking about the road to hell, he said it's broad, it's wide, and he uses the the adjective many, describes it as many are on that road. And then in verse 14, speaking of that road to heaven, it's straight, it's tight, it's narrow, and he uses the word few there be that find it. Few. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And then he says that word again in verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Notice how they call him Lord. These aren't Muslims. These aren't Buddhists. These aren't Hinduist people. These are folks who think they're Christians. They call him Lord. And it's not a handful. He used the word many. Many will say to me in that day. There's preachers in there. Did you notice that word prophesied means preach? We preached in your name. Imagine that. And these are folks who evidently lived a good life. These weren't wicked people by human standards. They talked about their wonderful works they'd done. And yet, are they okay? Is everything okay here? In verse 23, Christ says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, the average person would say, well, I'm okay because I'm no worse than anyone else. I'm not as bad as those folks over there. I'm a good person, and and I believe in God. But Christ says in this chapter, that road to hell is broad and wide, and many there be which go in thereat. You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation 20 and verse 15, that whosoever is not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. Could it be that Satan has deceived the multitudes? Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There is a way that seems right, spiritually speaking. There's a lot of folks out there, they think, hey, they're okay with God. They're ready for eternity. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Look in Matthew chapter 6, just a page back. There is, there is a sobering statement made by Jesus Christ. Every time I read it, I shake my head. Verse 23 of Matthew 6. Jesus says, but if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. Now watch this. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? He's talking about the spiritual light that people have. And, and, and they think, well, I, this is the truth. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven because I believe, you know, the virgin birth and the Trinity and the sinless life of Christ. Or I've been baptized. Or I'm in the one true church. That's their light. But if the light that is in them, the darkness, he says, how great is that darkness? How great is that darkness? Imagine that. The heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible says. And here's these folks, and they're, they're spiritually comatose. But, but here's the bigger question. As born-again Christians, do we care? 
Do we care? Did we care today? Because this is a message for believers, and it's, it's not a trivial matter. It really isn't. If you can picture how long eternity is, it never ends. So what we need to do is far more important than the, the NFL playoffs or the World Series or the, the NHL or the latest movie or the, the latest teen idol or whatever else it might be. It is far more important. We need a renewal. We need a revival of seeking the lost of reaching out because it's so important. Now, where, where do we start with this? Well, we start with an expectation. You know why we don't talk to more folks about their soul? We don't really expect them to respond. We, we don't really expect them to respond positively. You know, years ago, there was a preacher in the London area who went to Charles Spurgeon, and, and he said, you know, you have folks converted continually there at the tabernacle. We don't. And, and the the Brother Spurgeon said, do you, do you expect people to get saved every Sunday? You guys, guys said, oh, no, 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 not every Sunday. And he said, well, that's your problem. He said, you should. God give us a revival of expectation. Do we really expect the lost to respond if we pass the track or if we witness to them? We don't live with a, a conscientiousness of them actually responding. We need to expect God to do something in their hearts. That's called faith. And God said it can, the Lord said it can move mountains. Also, where do we start? Well, with our inner circle. Those people we know, that's really the best place to start. God has placed them in our circle of influence to reach them. We all know people that other people don't know. And, you know, in our minds and, and in the devil's economy, he has convinced us that they're not going to respond anyway. There's a survey done. I'm going to deal with it a little bit later but a survey done amongst what we would call non-believers. And amongst this study, it found that only 5% of those who were approached with the gospel resented it. They were offended by it. That means 95% would give it a hearing, would have an open ear. We put that exactly the other way. But I heard a preacher say years ago, everybody has a time in their life when they are spiritually vulnerable, he put it that way, where they're open where they're receptive. You know, I believe God sends things into people's lives, crises and such, to make them that way. And at such times, they would respond. We need to just reach out to them at such times. But we don't have that objective. That's the problem. What are we waiting for? You know, we can go to Africa, and I'll go there in a week and a half. And I'm excited about there, going there. We can go to Asia. We heard a missions letter from Southeast Asia tonight. And we can be fired up about those responding in places like that. But God has them right here, stateside. And God has placed them in our lives right here, in our, our circle of influence. And we know what we should do. But it's a decision we need to make, isn't it? We know we should talk to them about their soul. But we, we often excuse a personal responsibility to do so. We think, well, the, ch the church will do it, you know? And, and it's, it's true that we've got the church here, we've got the radio station, and we have the campus ministry, and, and we have the bus ministry, and we have the faith for life, and, and sermons from this pulpit and all that, and, 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 and that's all true. But, but the truth is, folks, you are the church. And so if we say, well, the church will do it, you're the church, I'm the church, we're the church. It is our responsibility and I can't fail to stress that enough. It, it really behooves us to be motivated in this area, to build a culture as a church in this area of reaching out, reaching out to the unsaved. Look at Matthew chapter 9, just a few pages forward if you would. You know, back in 19, 
87. I've been a little bit sentimental and nostalgic as of late as we come up on a, on a big anniversary here as a church. Back in 1987, I knocked doors every day of the week. I knocked doors on Sunday. I was out for hours at a time. I averaged, and because I say I, I was the only guy here basically. My wife was watching our, our, our infant son at that time. I averaged leading one person through the plan of salvation every week. I know because at, at that particular year, there were 52 people that I led through the plan of salvation. So it averages out to one a week. But, you know, I got busy. And, and stuff grew. And uh, there was administration to do. There was organization to do. There were ministries to oversee. There was just a lot of things and, you know, it, it, it just fell by the wayside. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not a personal witness on a weekly basis, but, but, but just not what I used to be able to do. And, and probably not the zeal I had to do at that time. We get that way. We get busy. We get sidetracked. We get, even as a church professional, and we can, we can get glossy-eyed in this area and gloss over our heart and lose our vision. You know, anyone can lose their vision. I think of where Christ was witnessing to the woman at the well. And here's the apostles. They're more interested in getting something to eat. And they come back in so many words, what are you doing with her? And, and here, we brought you food. Why don't you eat? And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. They said, Did somebody bring them something to eat? They're not getting it. It's not on their radar like it was the Lord. He was continually witnessing. He had that vision. He had something to say about it here in Matthew chapter 9. In verse number 36, Bible says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Notice verse 36 tells us that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Look in John chapter 4, if you would. That's the chapter we find Christ witnessing to that woman at the well. And it reminds me of something that he also said in this chapter. In, in uh, John 4, pick it up in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Notice this new convert had more zeal than the apostles. Well, verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. In other words, he'd rather eat, or rather witness than eat. Verse 35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. We find here that Christ is reminding us that the fields are white now. They're always white unto the harvest, spiritually speaking. There is no uh, downtime. When it comes to, to the salvation of souls, there's no slow season. <clears throat> when I 
used to be in the electrical business. There was a slow time of the year. For those of you in construction, you're going in that slow time of the year. But when it comes to the salvation of the lost, there's not a slow time of the year. There's never a time when it, it slows down. God give this whole church that vision. Now, why do we need that? Well, obviously, to fulfill uh, the Great Commission, but also the Great Commandment. Turn back to Matthew chapter 22, if you would. Matthew chapter 22. We find someone coming to Christ and has this, this question for him about the commandments. Which one's the greatest? And in verse 35, we pick it up. <clears throat> then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When we fulfill the great commandment, not just the great commission, it's all about loving other people, loving the lost, caring about them. Can we say that we have a love for the lost if we're not trying to bring them the, the gospel message? It's easy to pull up short. It's easy to back off from doing it. I was on a plane here a while back, and I was sitting next to a guy, and he looked to me to be in his maybe late 60s, early 70s. It was a short flight from where we were going to where we were landing. And it would have been really easy to just say, you know, I'm tired, and um, he's, he's interested in that magazine and such. But I, I, the Lord really pricked my heart, and I got to uh, thinking about what if it were me sitting next to me here as a lost man, most likely a lost man. And, and so I uh, started talking to him. I found out he was a psychologist. Oh, great, huh? And uh, you, you normally think liberal, humanistic, you know, everything else. Not always, but quite often. And uh, so I got to talking to him, found out he was a very interesting individual. He actually flies all over the world. He speaks in, in universities. He's very sought after and, and quite well known, an author and, and some other things. And uh, anyway, got to find out he was extremely interested in the Bible. He'd been to Jerusalem. He had some very interesting stories to tell. And he was very, very interested in the things of God. I left him with a track. We didn't have a whole lot of time to talk. But, but I thought to myself... What if I had just, in my flesh, and I know how that is, and you know how that is, you just kind of get to where, ah, why bring it up? But what if I hadn't brought it up? You know, I always think if we're going to fulfill the great commandment of loving others uh, the way we love ourselves, uh, how would we like it if it were us on the plane lost, and the person to us was, next to us was saved, and we didn't take the time to witness to them? God help us to put ourselves in, in, in their shoes. So why do we need to uh, be cognizant of the lost and have a heart for the unbelievers? Well, to fulfill the great commission, the great commandment. Thirdly, to be more like Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 again that he came to seek and save that which is lost. And I don't know if we can be more like Christ than, than when we witness to unsaved people. When we reach out to the unsaved people, it's so easy to get caught up in, in life and, and neglect people. But really, that's why God left us on this earth. That is what the ministry is all about. You know, we can also stray from this responsibility due to, to just, uh, just kind of getting a, a heart that nobody's going to respond anyway. They're not going to care. But God help us to, to keep the lost front and center 
and the fact some will respond. We need to set this a direction for the church body. You know, Fargo Baptist is, is not to just function as a church and come and, 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 you know, learn stuff and perform the jobs of a church. We've got to have a destination. Now, there is a reason that we meet like this. It's not to fill our, our minds and our hearts with Bible knowledge. It's not to be a sponge and just soak it all in. It is to be a conduit. It is to be a pipe, if you will. It is to be a channel, an aqueduct, whatever you want to call it, of taking truth from this point and delivering it over to that point and giving it to the lost out there. We are to reach people for Christ. I wonder how many people over the years we have... Uh, meaningfully given the gospel to. We have actually tried to engage them in a Bible study, the seven steps to God, uh, whatever it might be. There's not less people, and, and the gospel is not less powerful. It's us. It's us. God help us to bring an expectation to the service and, and, and come to learn something so that we can take outside these four walls and witness and witness, not sit here and just take it in. We've done our duty as a good sermon, but 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 rather take what we learn here and share it with a coworker, or share it with a, uh, a neighbor, or, or or share it with with a friend or a relative or or somebody that just may be seeking. I, I think as a, a church, we would have a totally different attitude if we came to every service saying, "What can I learn here to help engage this person in this Bible study with?" As a result, you know, I think we would have a totally different attitude if we came to church that way. I think it would uh, streamline our, our problems. Our, our, our witnessing actually affects our problems. I found this, that people who are engaged in trying to reach the lost are, uh, are, are not focused on, on causing trouble or problems. Somebody put it this way, if we're rowing the boat, we won't be rocking the boat. And, and if we are really engaged on the main thing, we will not be uh, engaged on the wrong thing. You know, a, a witness, by the way, is less apt to backslide. I found that true in my life. If we're witnessing the way we should, uh, we won't yield to temptation the way we shouldn't. We won't be watching things we shouldn't watch or doing things we shouldn't do. I've seen it in my own life. I'm also convinced that a witness is going to be wiser, and I've got a verse on that. Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, He that when a soul's is wise. I think there's a wisdom that goes with witnessing. If I could sum up the Christian life and simply put it into three main areas, we could talk about our personal walk or our devotion time, our quiet time as being one. Uh, We could talk about our time in church as also being a very important time of the Christian life. But I think thirdly that that one of witnessing is one of those, those building blocks And I know personally, if I'm not the witness I ought to be, there's something missing in my Christian life. We we need to really have that there. If we're not if we're not reaching out to folks, we're much like the Dead Sea. And and the Dead Sea lies 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest point on earth. It's fed from uh, Mount Hermon and places up north. And and here's this. It's really not a sea. It's a lake about 34 miles by 11 miles. And and, and, and that water comes off the mountains down into the Sea of Galilee and, and through the Jordan and down, 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 down into the Dead Sea where it has no outlet. And there in the Dead Sea, it just sits and it gets stagnant. And what a picture of Christian people who aren't giving out what they're taking in. In Revelation 3.16, I'll just quote it. 
Christ says to a local church, the Laodiceans, he says, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. God help us to get uh, motivated and to get mobilized. I uh, have an article here by, uh, it came out of a, a church leader magazine or an online site about what non-Christians really think about Christians. Ever wonder uh, what they think about you, um, wherever you work or live? This writer says, one of my greatest joys in research is talking to and listening to those who clearly identify themselves as non-Christians. I like to learn from listening to those who don't believe as I do, so I might be better equipped to witness to them. Over the past several years, my research teams and I have interviewed thousands of unchurched non-Christians. Among the more interesting insights I gleaned were those where the interviewees shared with me their perspectives of Christians. In this article, I grouped the seven most common types of comments in order of frequency. Then I followed that representative statement with a direct quote from a non-Christian. Okay, So I'm going to read you these comments, and let's learn from them. Number one, the comments from non-believers. Number one, Christians are against more things than they are for. Quote, it just seems to me Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative, they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them and stay upset all the time. And a shame on God's people for sending that message, not saying you, but if that's the message the world is getting. Number two, I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. So this is second most quoted. I am really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian who would be willing to spend more time with me. Wow. Who would have ever thought they're thinking that? Number three in order. I would like to learn from the Bible from a Christian. The Bible really fascinates me, but I don't want to go to church to learn about it. I would, it would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or at a place like Starbucks. Wow. In other words, they want to be engaged in a Bible study. Number four, and again, these are in no set or I mean, you're going to see them go back and forth. <coughs> this is number four. I don't see how much, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't see much different than other people I know. Number five, I wish I could learn to be a better husband or wife or dad or mom from a Christian. My wife is threatening to divorce me. I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian. He seems to have it together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. Number six, some Christians try and act like they have no problems. Mary works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I'd respect her more if she didn't put on such an act. I know better. And then finally, number seven, I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. I really would like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What is weird is that I am 32 years old, and I've never had a Christian invite me to church in my entire life. So you see positive or negative here, but there is a pattern. Non-Christians want to believe in something, and many of them want to interact with Christians. They want to see Christians' actions match their beliefs. They want Christians to be real. In one study this, this author conducted, he said, we found only 5% of non-Christians are actually antagonistic toward Christians. So it's time to stop believing the lie we've been told. 
Christ clearly told us the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. And Satan's the author of excuses. There's no reason to wait to reach those who don't know Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says some other words from there. Very interesting. There was an agnostic years ago by the name of of T.H. Huxley. Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. And I'm just going to quote this to you uh, as the man wrote it. T.H. Huxley, a well-known agnostic, was with a group of men at a weekend house party on Sunday morning while most of them were preparing to go to church. He approached a man known for his Christian character and said, Suppose you stay at home and tell me why you're a Christian. The man, knowing he couldn't match wits with Huxley, hesitated. But the agnostic touched his hand gently and said, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. Well, the man went on. He told him. And when he finished, there were tears in Huxley's eyes as he said, I would give my right arm if only I could believe like that. You know, there are people and they're dying inside. There are people out there and and they might have this exterior inside their bowl of worms. And they're just waiting for somebody to talk to them. So where do you find them? Well, really, they're all over the place. But personal acquaintances really would be the best. You can go cold turkey door to door. Uh, You can follow up on folks that visit here. But the folks you know, really, God has placed them in your world so that you can reach them. Like Andrew reached Peter, like James reached John, like uh, Philip reached Nathaniel. Uh, I think maybe Levi or Matthew might have reached out to Zacchaeus. I don't know. But who are the people that you know? Start there. Swallow that pride. Lose that fear of man. And God help us to do what Christ said in our opening text, to bring that gospel to every creature. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.